0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I'm Tim Marlowe, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy and actually had the privilege of being one of the judges this year um, for what's been an extraordinary um, short story competition. It was a treat and a privilege and sometimes a trauma um, in a good way. Art should be like that. This is a collaboration between the Royal Academy and Pindrop that's now in its fourth year. And this is the third time we've staged the Pindrop Short Story competition and prize and announcement here at the Academy. And it's very important, I think, for for an Academy that was founded by artists and architects to be open to other art forms, and in particular, literature. Uh, Dickens famously gave the annual speech here once, um, and Howard Jacobson gave it a few years ago. And uh, I think the relationship between the visual arts and literature has been an interesting one over the last 249 years of the Academy's history. And it's a relationship we want to continue. So the bad news is that this will be the last year that we do it in this room. And the good news is that next year, when we convene for the fourth pin drop short story competition and prize, it will be in our new David Chipperfield designed auditorium seating 270 of you in the new building at Burlington Gardens that's scheduled to open next spring and all being well, touch steel, it should open next year. Um, It's a very straightforward but brilliant idea, as many brilliant ideas are, to perform or to read live and performatively Um, but no one had done it really and so it's with great pleasure that I introduce Simon Day, uh, Simon Day. Yeah, Simon Day. He's good, actually. Yeah. Um, but Simon Oldfield's better, and Elizabeth Day, whose idea Pindrop was, and who were great partners for us. Um, Simon's going to explain a little more, give more of the context, and then um, Elizabeth is going to go through the shortlist, and then we're going to announce the winner. And it's, well, there is a surprise who the winner is, but there's no surprise that we're really. Uh, Chuffed, I think is the only way of putting it, to have Dame Penelope Wilton here to read the winning story tonight. And then there will be a brief conversation with the winner. Um, This room was the, the place in which the first public reading of Darwin's Origin of the Species was ever given. So no pressure to anyone who's got to do a reading in this room. But I know Penelope will manage that. But we're going to do a brief question and answer with the winner. There'll be a chance for you to um, ask some questions on the floor. And then we'll all retire for a very well-earned drink. So without further ado, Elizabeth Day. But before that, Simon Oldfield. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Tim. That was a really wonderful introduction. Um, Yes, I'm Simon Oldfield. And it's a great pleasure to be back at the Royal Academy of Arts for the third year of the RA and Pinjop Short Story Award. It, as Tim said, it forms part of an ongoing collaboration between Pinjop and the Royal Academy, and this provides a showcase for excellent short fiction. So it's really wonderful to be here this evening. The success of the award is testament to that rich and fruitful collaboration. I don't know if you know the background to the award, but we wanted it to reflect the ideas, the spirit of the Summer Exhibition, the idea that it's open submission, open to everyone, and this year we have received an unprecedented number of entries. We received hundreds of stories from all around the world, and they're represented here amongst the shortlist, and the quality has been superb. So good that it gave us a very difficult task to actually come up with a shortlist, and this year we came up with 12 up from six in previous years. Um, I'd like to thank everyone, though, who did actually submit a story, and especially the shortlisted writers. You really have given us 12 brilliant, brilliant stories. I'd also like to thank Dame Penelope Wilton for being here this evening to present the award and for being such a champion of the spoken word. Thank you, Penelope, and I'm looking forward to hearing you read the short story, the winner. And I'd also like to take the opportunity to thank... Audible for supporting the award, the amazing teams at RA and Pindrop, and a special thanks to Dame Sharm Phillips, who's sitting here this evening, who so kindly invited Penelope Wilton to present this year's award. So thank you, everyone. Congratulations to all of the shortlist, and I hand you over now to Elizabeth to take you through all those shortlist stories. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Thank you, Simon Day. I think it suits you. I think it suits you. It's so lovely to be here. I realise it's the coolest I've been all week. It's nice to know that in a heatwave you can always come to an art gallery just to sort of cool down because of the air-conditioned rooms. It's also lovely to be here celebrating something which is about the power of art and the power of the spoken word Um, in such globally uncertain times. um, It's it's good to remember that there are some wonderful things to celebrate, um, not least our not-so-short shortlist. But Simon is absolutely right. The quality was completely superb and... I know it's something of a cliche to say that when you're a judge on a prize, but I really do mean it this time. It was both an honor and a privilege to read all of your stories. The shortlist was, Anna Stewart for The Way I Breathed, Anne O'Brien for These Silver Fish, Carol Farrelly for Emergency, Cherise Saywell for Morelia Spilata*, Craig Burnett for Feathers Thick With Oil, Douglas W. Milliken for Heart's Last Pass, Emily Bullock for Freshwater, Honoria Byrne Rafferty, Jared McGuinness for Rough Beasts, Joanna Campbell for Brad's Rooster Food, Melanie Whitman for Undine, and Rebecca F. John for Paper Chains. I think the range of the titles there gives you a sense of the range of the stories. We were taken from Denmark, to America, to Australia, to Ireland, and back again to England. And all of the stories were powerfully written with great poignancy, humor, and wit. And I think those qualities also apply to the wonderful Dame Penelope Wilton, who's about to come on stage. Uh, known to so many of you for her role in Downton Abbey, but also a terrific stage actress and the recipient of six Olivia Award nominations. And a film actress too. Um, She starred in one of my favourite films of all time, Clockwise, with John Cleese. Um, But more recently, Pride and Prejudice, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, and she's just finished completing a film. And um, it is a great honour to have her here. She's a terrific champion of the spoken word. So without further ado, please welcome Dame Penelope Wilson to the stage.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, it is with great pleasure and my privilege to award the prize for the Pindrop and Royal Academy short story. And the winner is Cherise Saywell for Marilia Spilotta. And now, Cherise and everybody else, I am now going to read the winning short story, Marilia Spilotta, by Cherise Saywell. It was dark when we stopped, and though it wasn't yet late, already the road felt endless. I suppose I was grateful for the snake at first. It lay on the gravel near the edge of a field, and the priest braked hard as soon as he saw it. He shut off the engine and got out, and I got out too, wondering if now was time to run. We'd been driving for nearly an hour. By my estimation, we should have reached the town, but I couldn't tell where we were. In the light of the headlamps, you could see the neat wheel shape of the snake, the terrible coils, fat and still. There was blood on its side, and I was surprised it was red. I'd expected, I don't know, green or yellow, something more reptilian. The priest scratched his head. He had a beaky nose and rounded shoulders, and although he wasn't old, I couldn't tell his age. In the dim-lit dirt, our footprints were visible, trailing among some roadside litter, shredded plastic, glint of broken glass. "'Dead, you reckon?' he said. "'Maybe,' I said, checking for cars. Nothing at all. Not since we turned off the main highway and into this quiet road.' I've been looking for signs, but there were none. Doesn't smell like it, he said. Not yet. It had dropped fast in this heat. Might be fresh dead. He'd spoken so little on the road, he'd not even asked my name. Now he talked like he was playing a part. I was hitching on my own again. I was taking some getting used to. Until recently, I'd gone about with a man called Lester, who was older than me and drank a lot. He took a bit of managing, but for a while it was worth it, not having to get into cars on my own. I was the kind of girl who would disappear and no one would notice. There was a lot of arable along these roads, wheat and sugar cane, beans, inland for cotton, north for soft fruit. There was plenty of work for someone like me and for cash, too. You didn't need an address to get paid. I'd noticed, coming through the year before, how the people around here liked to observe the roadkill. They'd pull over and get out, check if the animal was dead. They might turn it over with the end of their shoe. If it had a pouch, they'd see if there was anything in it. You'd get a list of the things they'd seen. A wallaby with its skull crashed flat. A wombat with a bloodied snout. And a chidna with half its spines plucked out, taken for souvenirs, most likely. Looks like roadkill, I said. I waited for the details of his roadside finds. But there was a strange empty pause. And when I looked, the priest was tapping his forehead, watching the ground. Not necessarily, it might have come through the field. He pointed into the darkness. In which case, it wouldn't have got as far as the road. He indicated the dirt round where the snake lay. You can't tell, he said. No trail. He leaned right in, examining his own fresh footprints. The strangest thing. It's like it came from nowhere. He scanned the area around the snake, and then he looked up into the black sky, as if assessing the likelihood of its arrival by that route. This was probably I was probably relieved at the attention the priest was giving to the snake. He had he ill intentions towards me, he'd likely be getting on with things by now. Still I was nervous. I, I wonder what kind it is, I said. Morelia spilotta, he said, with some authority. Carpet snake, he clarified. They don't bite. I knew this, but it didn't mean the creature was harmless. And in any case, a snake could be a great pretender. The elaborate patterns of the poisonous kind might be perilously close to one much more benign. It was safer to be afraid of the lot of them. We should just leave it, I said. But the priest continued to study the dirt around the snake. He was muttering. His lips moved silently around something I couldn't make out, and I wondered if he was a little crazy. When you're hitching alone and you get in a car, you learn what to look for. Only I'd been with Lester too long. I was out of practice. I'd seen black cloth, a cross, a square white collar, or maybe this man's collar was cut out of card. His shirt adapted from something plain and black from Woolworths. It was about 30 miles back that I got in his car. My bag still lay on the back seat where I'd flung it. The priest knelt near the snake and pressed his hands in the dirt. He examined the indentation it left. He placed both hands there and looked again. Then he stood up and checked the trail his shoes had left between the edge of the gravel where the car was parked and the loose, dry dirt where the snake lay. He brushed his hands together and turned at me. We're going to take this snake with us he announced. I tried to read his face to see what game he might be playing or if he genuinely believed in a sane reason to load a snake into the back of his car. After all, it might not even be dead. The blood on it could be surface wound from sliding over something sharp, a farm tool or a curled over lid of a can. And venomous or not, many a snake will drive its coils tight round a person's neck. "'Open the boot,' said the priest. "'There's nearly always somewhere to run to, "'so long as you're safe out of the car. "'But you need to know if running alone "'into those aching miles of darkness is the better risk.' "'I stood there half-decided "'until the priest came over and opened the boot himself. "'He was thin and not especially tall, "'and I thought I could probably escape him if necessary, "'though you can't always judge a man's strength by his size.' He went back now, and he bent down, and he took that snake in his arms. Its coils seemed to loosen, and I wondered if it was dead after all. A neat, round depression remained on the soft dirt where it had laid. The priest deposited the snake in the boot of the car. The interior light made its patterns uncertain, its color sallow and strange." I turned and searched in the direction from which we'd come, the rough forms of ragged edged hills pitched up from the flatness, the uncertain horizon dissolved in places into an inky sky. I wanted a set of headlamps or any kind of light that might indicate I wasn't marooned out there with a deranged priest and a snake in questionable health. I half-lifted my arm as if by doing so I might conjure a vehicle. The priest must have noticed. His arm still rested against the lid of the woot. There was nothing along this stretch of the road, he said, with some authority. Not at this time of night. He turned and smiled blandly. In the low light, he appeared quite young, perhaps not even thirty. I'm afraid I'm your best bet, he added. Go on, get in but I wouldn't do it. Not with that snake, I said. The priest checked his cargo. Python, he corrected. Carpet python. Morelia spilotta. He closed the boot. Not venomous, he said. I chewed on the inside of my lip for a moment, considering. But you're not sure, I said. You're no expert. In fact, I bet it's the only kind of snake you know. There was a pause. Only a brief one but it was a pause enough for me. Then the priest said, that's not true. Go on then, I challenged him. Name another. He didn't hesitate. Sudecus porphyriacus, he said, red-bellied black snake, venomous. Pseudonongia textilis, eastern brown snake, poisonous but rather plain-looking. ''Acanthopis Antarcticus,'' he hissed the S, ''common death adder.'' He turned his head a little, raising his eyebrows. I still couldn't tell if he was mad or just weird, or if this whole thing was a prelude to something else altogether. He folded his arms, chanted, ''Nauticus Scutatus, mainland tiger snake, extremely venomous,'' he said, like he was making a promise. He clicked to open the boot again, beautifully patterned, he added, looking a little too long at the snake lying in his car, perhaps making sure, but differently marked to this creature. He checked the place where the snake had lain, as if to reassure himself. Shall I continue? I kept my voice level. No, I said. You could go on and on. They're all just snakes, as far as I'm concerned. I measured the distance between us and I'm not getting in the car with one. I'm just not, I said. The priest held himself perfectly still for a moment and then he opened the passenger door and reached into the glove compartment and my legs went to jelly. It was just cigarettes he was after. He offered me one. I shook my head and he frowned and took one himself and then tossed the pack through the window into the front of the car. Only he did this awkwardly as if he was aware of his brain sending each individual signal to his limbs and did not trust that they would obey. He lit his cigarette and inhaled, and I observed how deeply he drew back, and I saw that he needed it. Scrutinising his halfless face, I said, You don't behave like any priest I've ever met. I've no idea what you're talking about, he huffed. Well, I said, picking up girls like me, for one thing, I didn't pick you up, he said hotly. I offered you a lift. Call it what you like, I said. I've done nothing wrong, the priest protested. But you want to, I said. And you're a long way out of town to be alone with a girl like me. I folded my arms. People around here might be interested to hear about your night rides with hitchhikers. The priest held himself perfectly still. Can I have a cigarette now? For a moment, he didn't move. His face was shrouded, and I couldn't tell what he might do. And then he went back to the car and fussed about in it, in the semi-darkness, retrieving the packet. He held it out to me. His hand was shaking. I took one, and he offered me a light. But I said, no, thank you, and I put the cigarette in the pocket of my T-shirt. I didn't want to smoke. I just wanted to watch him fetch me one. And I wanted him to understand this. Something came over him then. And I did not anticipate the speed of it. He seized the back of my T-shirt. The thin fabric and my bra strap, too, were bunched tightly in his grip. And he handled me round the back of the car. And when I was before the snake, he prodded the air above with the fingers that still held the cigarette. It will only hurt us if we let it, he said. Touch it. Go on. The snake lay perfectly still. And the priest's grip on me did not loosen. It seemed best simply to do as I'd been told, so I put my hand out and I touched that snake. And although it felt slippery, it was not smooth in a way I expected. The patterns on the animal's skin were like something embossed in cool, polished leather. My fingers came away dusty and I wiped them on my shorts. But right then, at that very moment I did this, the snake flicked its tongue and gently, almost imperceptibly, It drew its coils in on itself. The priest about jumped out of his body. You can let me go now, I said. I wasn't sure if he would, but he did. So I said, now it's your turn. But I've already touched it, he protested. I just carried it to the car. He was unsettled, but it wasn't enough for me. I wanted the pleasure of making him do something he didn't want to. When you thought it was dead, I taunted... Are you afraid? A man of God shouldn't be afraid. I said, a man of God, like someone who knew better. At this, the priest threw down his spent cigarette. I have nothing to fear, he announced, and he swished his hand along the length of the snake. It was done with a flourish, like a performance, to demonstrate fearlessness, I suppose, though he might simply have wished to better my tentative prod. In any case, he must have moved too quickly because at that very moment he swept his hand over the snake suddenly and without warning, it lifted its head and in a brief darting movement it speared itself at his fingers then sank back into its own shape. It may have even hissed. The whole thing was so fleeting I'd have wondered if it had happened at all except that the priest screamed, clutching his hand. Oh God, he moaned. His face was like wax. A fine, dark lacework of blood patterned the skin of his finger. He sank to the dirt at the back of the vehicle. The still air seemed to massage the darkness. The outline of a nearby ridge leaked into the sky. I stood over the priest and moved my sandal feet about in the loose gravel at the edge of the tarmac. I was caught somewhere between triumph and contempt. I thought you said it wasn't venomous, I smirked. The priest didn't answer. His breath came fast and shallow in the hot, still night. I prodded him with my foot. If it's not venomous, how come you're poisoned? He cradled his injured hand. His eyes moved, but nothing else. He raised them to mine. There was no trail, he said. How could that be? He lowered his eyes. I was merciless. Are we far from town, I demanded. Half an hour, maybe, he murmured. It was half an hour from where you picked me up, I said, and we'd been driving a good deal longer than that. The priest seemed to tip a little to the side. His head drooped. Yes, he said, I know. I shouldn't have brought you this way. A drop of blood fell to the dirt, and in the flat, strained light, it was the wrong colour. I squatted beside him. I smoothed my hand over the fine hairs on my arms and I watched him. I just can't work out how it got there, he said. It doesn't really matter now, does it? I folded my arms. He sniffed and angled his bony shoulder so he could scratch at his cheek with it. But did you see the size of it? he said weakly. And no trail. No trail. It's not possible. But that's not why you stopped, is it? I said. I don't know why I stopped, the priest replied. And I saw that this was true. Well, I said dryly, you shouldn't have put that snake in your car. I just wanted someone to see, he said. Who? Anyone. He slumped. They like to look at things like that round here. They like to look at roadkill, I said. They don't care what it's called in Latin. The priest leaned back and closed his eyes slowly, as if he was shutting them from everything he'd ever hoped for. His forehead and his neck were damp with perspiration. The light that leaked from the interior of the car caught the shine of it. Without opening his eyes, he whispered, they probably wouldn't look at anything I showed them anyway. My stomach did a sort of flip-flop. How young he looked, not thirty, that, that old. At that moment he didn't look even twenty, he seemed younger than me. His hair was damp and curled around his forehead. He plucked at the white rectangle of his collar as if he might stop pretending if he'd only take it off, but he was shaking too much so he gave up and let his hand rest in his lap. He tipped his head back and swallowed and shadows shifted over his skin. I imagined him propped up against the bumper, skin blue and marbled. Or maybe he'd tip over in the dirt as his strength drained away. I wondered who would stop for him, or if anyone would. Where might I be by then? I heard myself speak, and I could have been someone else. My voice was so thin and so cautious. You were probably right, though, I said. It doesn't look deadly. Maybe I could draw off some of the venom. The priest seemed to have sunk even further into himself. I don't know how, he said. I waited. He waited a moment. You don't see many snakes where I am from, he added. Where I'm from, I told him, there are plenty, but we don't pick them up. I got onto my knees and I put his finger in my mouth, tasting the tang of the blood and the tar of the fag. I thought I should taste something else, too, something poisonous, sour, bright, yellow, I imagined, or milky and bitter. But when I drew from the wound, there was only blood and an angled edge, sharp and foreign. I released his hand. Ah! I ran my tongue along the roof of my mouth. Then I ran my finger over his injury, and I felt it again long enough to pinch out easily. Glass. It must have been lodged in the skin of the snake. Gently, I prized it loose. Look, I said, holding the fragment up in the light. You've not been bitten at all. I lifted the hem of my shirt and used it to clean his finger. And then I held that up too. See? I can't explain what happened next except that the colour returned to his face and there was something in his expression like he'd found a thing he'd given up for lost. And I wanted a bit of that. He laughed. And I laughed with him. And then, without missing a beat, even without thinking, I put his finger back in my mouth. The priest shifted abruptly, straightening his legs, pressing his knees together, he pushed me away. Then he was on his feet. He turned and he was wiping his hands on his trousers, brushing dust off his shirt, and I felt as if he was already far away from me, accelerating along a slip road that would take him fast into his future. Whatever he might have wanted when he picked me up, he no longer did. Whatever he had hoped for, or not admitted he wanted, but half hoped for anyway, something had shifted, a new kind of something had replaced it. And I felt inside me an absence, an emptiness, the same as when Lester had fallen, rotten with drink by the roadside, his vodka meth scent, the heat of the sun. I'd hoped we'd be on our way north, where there were mangoes waiting to be picked and wrapped in squares of tissue, then gently laid in flat wooden crates and shipped south. I'd hoped we'd get there quick enough to bag the best accommodation, I'd imagined us in a room, not a tent, with a bed and a cotton sheet to go over us both, and a window that looked away from the road and maybe onto some trees. But it had been a foolish thing to hope for. Right then, out of the darkness came bright lights, a heavy rising tumble, and a semi-trailer hefted past. The car rocked with the force of the air the truck took with it, and the night whirled around us. The priest coughed as dust flew about, and he adjusted his collar. He put his hand up, perhaps to acknowledge that everything was okay, that we hadn't broken down, that we were merely being observing a roadkill. I watched the silty cloud billying into the footprints and sinking into the place where the snake must have lain while the vehicles passed and the dust rose and fell, erasing the trail that the creature had left. I thought about how the priest had pushed me off, and how soon I would be getting in and out of cars with people who might want to talk to me, who might want to hurt me, or who might not even notice me, just let me out after 20 miles later and forget I'd ever existed. I wrapped my arms around myself. The priest was pressing at his finger where the glass had pierced him. He sighed and walked over to me. And maybe he noticed what the dust had done to the prints in the dirt. I don't know. But he leaned in and he touched my face and he stroked my hair. And I saw that he didn't want to take his hand away, but he did. And after that, he went to the boot of his car and placed both arms beneath the snake and lifting it gently, almost tenderly. He carried it over to the gravel and through the dirt beyond the place where he'd found it to the edge of the field where he sat. It set it down. We should go now, he said, when he was done. Yes, I replied. We got in the car. He spoke little. Though at one point he asked my name and I told him and he told me his. He whistled as we drove us, he drove us through until we reached the cotton farm where I'd heard there was work. There, he thanked me for my company and gave me a crisp new banknote before we parted. And he said to save it so I could travel by bus when I was ready to move on.
0: Would you like to join us? I think it would be perfectly reasonable for you to say, absolutely not. I'm, uh, I'm, I've just been told I've won a prize. I've just listened to my story being read um, by an illustrious um, actor, and I don't think I'm in any fit state to answer any questions, but give it a go. I'm
4: really shocked. <laughs> Thank I, you. To, it,
0: notwithstanding the quality of Penelope's reading, which is immaculate, but I'm curious as to how it is for you... This is your voice, you've, it's from your head imagination, it's on paper, but this I'd imagine is the first time you've heard it read aloud, at least it must be the first time you've heard it read aloud in public. Yes. How is yes. that?
4: It's amazing, it's wonderful, but it's like gifting it to someone else as well, I think when you give it to somebody, especially, um, thank you so much, it was a wonderful reading, to give it to... a, a a professional, a, you know, somebody who can really bring it to life. It's fantastic. There's also a kind of letting go as well. You have to let go of it and think it belongs It belongs to her now. It belongs to the reader to make something of it. And then it belongs to the audience. But I think that's a really, it's a really important thing about creating anything, any kind of story or poem or even a novel, something longer form. You have to let it go. You have to let go of it and say it belongs to them. It belongs to who is reading it. Um, whether they're reading it out loud or they're just reading it for themselves it belongs to them now
0: how does it change when you hear it or does it change?
4: it does change yeah but I really like I really like the way you um, you sped up you know when she's touching the snake those moments um, of uh, of tension where I had written I wanted longer sentences and I had read them aloud to myself because I wanted a kind of rhythm, and I was really pleased that, that you did that, because I'd hoped for that. And I wouldn't have minded if you'd done something different, because I'm sure it would have been fantastic. But it is, but, it is good but there were other bits that I heard differently. I kept stumbling over the Latin when I would read it to myself at home to make sure it was reading well, but you didn't. It was... <laughs> thank
1: you. <laughs> I love how this has become a critique of the reading as much as your story, which is fantastic, which was amazing, by the way. But thank you so much again. Sorry, I just have to. I want to ask one question. The, 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 the story is very layered, and there's lots of subtlety to it. It you know, really does feel like it's, you're unpeeling something as you go, and Elizabeth and I and Tim have all spoken about that aspect of the story.
0: It um, sloughs itself as it goes along.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> is that something that you did consciously, or is it something which... Yes and no. Okay. It took
4: a long time, and my friend Richard, who came with me tonight, read it at um, in the early stages. And uh, sometimes I would show it to Richard or to people in my writing group, and I would say, "Oh, this isn't. Is this working or is this not working?" And at one stage, I re-edited it, and Richard said, "You've lost some of the energy of the earlier draft. So I'm just going to critique the earlier one <laughs> instead." And uh, and he was right. It had lost something, and I would have to rest it and then go back, and sometimes it was too overstated. It's taken a couple of years, that story, and I was speaking to one of the other uh, shortlisted writers. It might have been Yuan who'd said her story had taken like five years. Sometimes you have to rest a story. You can't think, oh, it's gonna have this, and it's gonna have this, and it's gonna have this, I think, because then it feels really uh, contrived, I think. Sometimes it comes unconsciously, you can't program it. I think I speak, I can't speak for all writers, but I speak for a lot of writers, I mm. think. And and when I say you can't you can't really plan a story, sometimes you just have to kind of let it come. Mm. <laughs>
0: do you, that's a terrible question about where the starting point was, but do you have snake phobia? Was the hitchhiking idea I did, the I starting did, point? When
4: I was very young, um, in my teens, I was in a car with a priest who stopped for a snake and put the snake in the car. I, I wasn't alone, and I wasn't hitchhiking. I didn't live that kind of life. I did meet people who had lived that kind of life, that the girl in that story does. But I was I was coming back. I used to work at the, the bingo in this town called Woodburn, and uh, and we would drive back to Korokai, and he stopped to pick up the snake. And I was in the car with my boyfriend, actually, because my, my boyfriend was from the city, and he was cursing you. He was going, what are you doing putting snake in the car? And the priest had grown up on a farm. And it was... I still... Can picture what the snake looked like, but there's none of. Apart from the image of the snake, there's nothing from that actual. You know, from those circumstances in the story, it it became something Mm. different. So.
0: Did, did, it did have
4: blood on its side, too. Oh, really? <laughs>
0: yeah. and, and why did the priest in your life pick it up? He was a naturalist or a curious... I don't know.
4: No, because he, he wasn't that kind of... He didn't love wildlife. He had grown up on a farm, and he had that kind of rough edge, I think, that some rural Australians have. And I grew up in rural Australia. But I, I still don't know. I still don't know why he did it. He was playing some kind of a game that I... Don't underst- I still don't understand. I think he, was, he must have known that it couldn't, it wouldn't bite, or, but I, I really don't know. And did he punctuate yeah.
1: the conversation with the Latin?
4: No, author? no, he didn't, no. <laughs> I, don't know
0: I, I don't know why I want to share this with you, but I, I'm going to. I, I was I'm slightly obsessed with snakes when I was a teenager. I thought they were amazing things. I was slightly afraid of them, but amazed by them. And I went to Australia before I went to university for a year and was picking fruit in rural Australia. So this story resonated and whenever there was a snake found, they always used to call me over to look at it and I remember running over one in a car, me and a mate, we we had a car and we drove over a snake, it shot out in the road and I reversed back and wound the window down to try and take a photograph of this, it was venomous, rearing up in a kind of coil, I still have this photograph and... We were terrified. We got out the car the other side when we parked 10 miles down the road because we'd heard stories that I th- somebody thought there'd be a, a nest of them, that they could somehow get themselves wrapped around your wheel and people would get uh, bitten or whatever. They, they, now, that, I, didn't, I didn't think yours was a great story because it reverberated, but it's amazing how uh, something as kind of... I mean, it's, it's not many people would think about writing a short story about someone who stops for a dead snake. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing how it resonates personally for people as well as it does universally. For if we
1: receive one next year yeah, about a snake coiled around a world, world, I'm going to know <laughs> where it came from now. <laughs>
4: they are quite scary, those ones that rear up, though. I think they're the king browns. Like, the black snakes are really poisonous, but they're shy. But brown snakes are aggressive. We, and I didn't know the names of lots of them. We just knew that carpet snakes weren't venomous. I mean, there are thousands of snakes, but we knew that black snakes are poisonous, but they're shy, and a brown snake will get you, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so. Can I just ask you a little bit, you, you've written novels as well, which we, since mm-hmm. like, we read all the stories blind, and then afterwards, they sort of, these great stories emerge from the reading, you know, hundreds of stories. Um, and they are real gems, all of your stories, so thank you again. But your story, it, once we started to find a little bit more about it, I realised you also write, have written two novels been published. Um, can you just tell us a little bit the difference between writing, for you personally, a short story versus a novel? Mm. Is that a tough question? N-
4: well, yes and no. I, I I wrote short stories first, and I love the short story form. I did really like writing a novel. When I first started writing my first novel, I had um I had uh, two young children, had two babies, and I, but so my time was really fragmented, and I wanted something bigger that I could come back to, and I had a really boring job at the time, and I kind of needed something, I don't know, something big and ongoing. But that said, some short stories take me as long. I mean, this one, I I started it a couple of years ago, so sometimes they take me as long. Sometimes they don't. It's, uh, I don't know, there's something really magic, I think, about the short story form. There's something, I always think a novel is kind of like an aerial view um, of a, a, the terrain, the narrative terrain, whereas I feel like a short story is like a cross-section. Um, and it's, it's kind of like poetry mm. sometimes, I think, and the way you can layer things in and the way you can do lots of things in a very short, uh, short number of words, short space of time. And there's
1: no room for error, really. There.
4: No, there's not. You really do have to. Th- I mean, I think novelists should think about every word as well. If I read a novel that feels lazy, I just want to go through with a red pen. But um, I think there's less scope for that in in the short story. I think you'll all you'll all know that. You know, I think you you have to have a really good editorial eye. Mm. And um, lots of people who write novels will take them to an editor, and they're. I, I think with a short story, though, you really have to have your editorial head on um, and your kind of poetry brain as well. And, and the, the narrative thing too, it's all going on. Um, I don't It's know. interesting, because
0: I don't, I don't want to bring it back or oh, always make the parallel with art, but you know, the, the notion of the drawing can be self-contained, can be as accomplished or more important than supposedly a finished painting or sculpture. It can be a kind of laboratory, it can be a sketch, it can be the germination of an idea. It can actually be a fragment of a larger work. It can be part of something else. Mm. It can be all those things. Mm. Whereas we tend respectfully to consider the short story as a separate genre in its own right, which Mm. it is. But it can be those other things as well, can't it? I Mm. mean, I'm, I'm not saying in the case of this that it was a novel waiting to be made, but it could have been episodically part of a novel it could be the beginning of something it could be the end of something it feels like
1: it could be bigger doesn't it yeah
0: yeah
4: yeah I really like that challenge of distilling though distilling something to its to to its essentials and um I don't know there's so much more there's so much scope to play I think with with the short story form as well I like Oh, I just ordered these stories, and now I'm a bit nervous. And the name of the writer's gone out of my head. And they feel they're much, they're less about narrative and more about moments.
1: Mm. Um, ben Okri quite like that, isn't he? Some of his work is like this, very, these precious moments are captured in very short, short stories. Mm. And there's something about. I'm so
4: embarrassed. I haven't read him. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> do,
0: do you write poetry?
4: No, I wish I could. <laughs> I'm a bit intimidated by. Poems. I did write a few poems very early on when I was writing, but I, I don't know. I don't know why I don't... I'm scared of poets. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, join the club. <laughs> Would you be able to take a couple of questions from the floor? Yes. Before you have <laughs> that very well-earned drink. <laughs> Would anyone like to ask a question?
2: Whether you actually formally came to writing through education or it's something that you've always had a passion for and, as, as you said, you had a very boring job, is it something that you just did in your spare time, and how long have you been writing? Is it something you 've always done just for yourself?
4: I, I think I always wanted to write when I was younger, but i didn 't really have the confidence and I think I distracted myself with other things. I felt I should have some kind of career and I went to university and I had research jobs and I think that kind of preoccupied me and But I found, I always found writing, especially academic writing, I found quite difficult. And I had thought that if I was good at writing fiction, that it would be easy. And I think it was a realisation that it wasn't meant to be easy, that kind of made it easier for me to write. So I came to it quite late, after I'd had my first child, and I did a little online course so I had a bit of feedback and I started going to a writing group and um, and speaking to writers about it really helped because I thought, oh, it's okay if it takes a long time and it's okay to write things that don't work and put them away and it's okay to come back to something. So I think probably I've always felt like I wanted to be a writer, but it was, I think, you have to learn it like anything else. Sometimes I think that because, people think that because anyone can pick up a pen that anyone could write and therefore if you're good at it you'll just be able to do it. But I think it's just like painting or drawing or any other kind of art form where you have to learn the craft and practice it and allow yourself to fail. And I always say, I know I say this to friends all the time, you have to allow yourself to be humbled by it as well, to be defeated by a story, to write things that people might not like and to, Tune your judgment so you don't get crushed by rejection.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who do you read it to first, after you, or who reads it?
4: My stories, I go to a writing group and some friends, we've been going to this group for years and years, so I take things on to the writing group. And my friend Richard, who lives in Norwich, I email him things and we'll, we'll look at each other's work. So, And, you know, the... Often the criticisms are quite varied. Mm. It's good, you know, sometimes I have to take a decision. I have to think, do I stick with, with what I think, or what Richard's saying is different to what Ruth is saying, which is different to what Elizabeth is saying. And I think that's really good for any writer to have to mm. It is, the writing group's
0: a very interesting idea, actually, because, I mean, art students, they have this really rigorous, sometimes brutal, sort of group criticism when they're at art school. And then once they leave art school, unless there's a group of fellow artists they can trust, it's then on their own. And of course that you can invite people to the studio, but there isn't that group dissection or annihilation or support. Whereas <laughs> like writing, support. it sounds like you've the other way, that you do it on your own, but now you've actually got a group. That are, are you brutal with each other or fairly supportive? No, uh,
4: not brutal. Um, not brutal. But. You know we have to be critical you know with this story this story started there was a really strong image at the start all the way through until the last draft and my friend rose said to me charise i don't know why this image is still here the story doesn't need it and i felt really attached to that image because that's where it started from and it didn't have a snake in it and and i went home and i still myself and i made another copy of the story just in case and i took the image out and you know, it was much better, and from then it was plain sailing. You know, That's for interesting, the landscape. Because
1: imagery, actually, in the story, I, maybe, it, it, it's is is so powerful. I, for me, at least, it's you really do feel like you're there. You feel the landscape. And uh, when I read it for the first time, it was that that that, sort of sh- that the, the, the the lorry zooming past, and that swoosh of air, which mm. kind of clearly. Clearly, metaphorically and, and, and really in the story. And I thought that was a really powerful moment. There's a very clear image that kind of conjured up at that moment for me, at least. Mm. Um, but there were other moments which are very powerful.
4: Mm. That thing about... It's a cliche now for writers, that kind of killing your darling. So it's true. That image at the start, I mean, I was so attached to it. And, mm. it, you know, it needed someone else to say, Jesus, Charisse, get over no. it. Just get rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't need it anymore. And it yeah. didn't. It didn't belong, you know, anymore.
0: Yeah. So. I um, I think there are many... Wonderful things about the story. And not least that you managed to have a man and a woman in isolation, one of whom's a priest, it involves a snake, and really there isn't an Adam and Eve fable going on there. We haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Would anyone else like to have a a question?
3: You mentioned um, you made a sign of a, a red pen on other authors' works. And I wondered if your own obvious talent affects your enjoyment of reading literature for pleasure.
4: Oh no, not at all. Do you know I read a lot when I was younger, and then I kind of stopped in my last years of school. And I did lots of reading for school, and then lots of reading at university. And I really stopped reading fiction, and it did feel like something was missing. I saw a lot of films in that time, and uh, when I started reading again, it was like I came back to reading fiction with completely new. Purpose, but I don't. I was reading. I was telling Richard actually. On uh, when we went to lunch today. I was saying I was reading Elizabeth Strout's story. Um, is it Isabel and Amy? I think it's called. And um, and I really like her, but she's nothing. I I read it and I think, oh my god she's so amazing, she's so amazing. It's nothing like I would write. Uh, so I, I still enjoy, I enjoy reading fiction as a reader and as a writer. So I sometimes I read with a different purpose, but no, I, I love it. I kind of felt like, oh God, now I know. You know I, I know why I'm reading now.
1: I think it's the same in the art world as well with visual arts, isn't it? I mean, a lot of artists are very supportive of each other and I think they and they can be at least publicly. Publicly, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I think might, it must be hard to look at different things and, and to critique it in the context of your own work, I suppose, but that's, I mean, part of the challenge of being a great artist in your chosen field is being able to, I suppose, draw influence but still stay very clear and focused yeah. on your voice and who you are. Absolutely, mm. yeah. So congratulations for that.
0: <laughs> yes, um, congratulations. And um, I think on such a hot or balmy summer's yes. evening, um, we should um, all go and... Have a drink, look at the summer exhibition. Um, can I thank Pindrop again, Elizabeth and Simon, for um, their partnership and their um, generosity? Can I thank, in particular, uh, Dame Penelope Wilton for a, a beautiful reading? Uh, can I thank unofficially Richard from Norwich for being. Yes! present. <laughs> uh, a can reader. I thank you all for coming, but above all, can we thank and congratulate Cherise Well for winning this yes. year's Pindrop Drop? <laughs> <story>, thank you. <laughs>